In the wake of one of the most tumultuous years in crypto history, the conversations happening at Consensus 2023 have never been more timely and important. This April, Coindesk is bringing together all sides of the crypto, blockchain, and Web3 community to find solutions to crypto's thorniest challenges and finally deliver on the technology's transformative potential. Join developers, investors, founders, brands, policymakers, and more in Austin, Texas, April 26th to 28th for Consensus 2023. Listeners of The Breakdown can take 15% off registration with code BREAKDOWN. Register now at consensus.coindesk.com and join Coindesk at Consensus 2023. Welcome back to The Breakdown with me, NLW. It's a daily podcast on macro, Bitcoin, and the big picture power shifts remaking our world. The Breakdown is produced and distributed by Coindesk. What's going on, guys? It is Friday, April 14th, and today I am joined by Sergey Nazarov for a paradigm shift conversation. Before we dive into that, a quick reminder. The Breakdown is expanding to The Breakdown Network. We've launched a new show, Bitcoin Builders, which you can find anywhere you listen to podcasts. And most importantly, if you are listening to this on the Coindesk Podcast Network feed, you will need to switch over to the Breakdown Only feed. After April 23rd, the Breakdown will only be available on that Breakdown Only feed. For more info about that announcement, go back and listen to my show from April 11th. All right, guys, today I'm excited to announce a new interview series that I've been mentally calling Paradigm Shifts. These are interviews where, rather than just talking about whatever happens to be going on in markets that week, we actually dig deeper into a bigger thesis or a way of looking at the world. They're meant to be a little bit more ponderous, big thinky, exploratory, etc., right? Something that's good for Friday and weekend listening. I'm kicking off the series with Sergey Nazarov. Sergey is the co-founder of Chainlink, which most of you will know as the leading decentralized Oracle network, helping developers bring real-world data into blockchain applications. This discussion, though, isn't really about the normal crypto stuff. Instead, it builds on a number of themes that Sergey has been publicly exploring that have to do with more fundamental changes when it comes to human digital experiences. On March 14th, Sergey tweeted, Recent institutional failures once again highlight the fragility of today's economic system, where the combination of fractional reserve banking, rising rates, illiquid assets, and rapid withdrawals can lead to rapid insolvency. It's clear we need to redefine society's trust model. He expanded on this a few weeks later. On April 4th, Sergey tweeted, The release of Twitter's algorithm is part of a societal shift towards large brands restoring trust through opening code, and of people wanting to know how the systems that shape our lives actually work in a guaranteed way. The strongest form of this is cryptographic guarantees. I expect more and more of society to become cryptographically guaranteed over time. We're entering a unique moment of realization by users. Every day, we are waking up to the power that technological platforms have over every one of their interactions, how they communicate, who they connect with, where they spend their money, what currency they transact in. The good news is that once people realize that there is a superior way for their digital and commercial lives to work, they rarely go back. People can't unsee this better way of interacting. Our new collective mission is to help create a world that is powered by cryptographic truth. So my conversation with Sergey picks up on these themes. The idea is that one, society's trust model is broken, two, cryptographic truth offers an answer, and three, we extend this conversation even further, exploring how the emergence of generative AI amplifies these challenges to a new, previously unimaginable level. All right, Sergey, welcome back to The Breakdown, sir. How are you doing? Doing well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, I'm super excited. This is long overdue. We've been talking about having you back to explore some of the themes that we started talking about you know, years ago now at this point. Uh, but I think that the timing has gotten even more opportune. I think that a lot of the conversations that people are having now are manifestations of some of the things that we were talking about uh, the last time. And a lot of those conversations are fundamentally about a, a shifting idea of the trust systems around us, right? So we are continuing to experience challenges to the default assumptions that we've had about the world around us. Uh, that might be in terms of the failure of institutions and declining belief in them, right? We just had a great example of the banking crisis last month. Uh, it also is, I think, being driven or accelerated by, uh, you know, transformative technological change, in particular AI. So where we want to start today is is discussing society's trust model and uh, and what the challenges have been, and then I think from there we're going to spend some time. Going into the, you know the alternatives that are being created, uh, potentially a new way to look at uh, what we're all doing here in the crypto industry, and some of the future ramifications that that might be sort of emergent now. 
Uh, but that's that's where we'll start, and, and I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, so am I. Excited, excited to jump in. All right. So uh, where I want to start is is kind of with some of the foundations and trying to uh, kind of underpin the argument. And so let's start with what society's trust model has been and what challenges have started to arise that are making people question that model. So I think the failure of brands and institutions that people were considered considered as reliable are things that have started to shake people's assumptions about what a brand and an institution means. And I think what's happened so far with banks is a very, very small thing, frankly, relative to what could happen, uh, some of what will probably happen. And I think the realization that people are starting to have is this uh, difference between a probabilistic world and a deterministic world. So I think many people assume that they were in a deterministic world where things are guaranteed and where there is no ability to deviate. But really, they're in a probabilistic world where even if you have a password to a bank account, you don't actually have control of anything in that bank account. You just have a way to log into some system with a nice logo in it that gives you the illusion of control, basically, or the illusion of safety. Whereas deterministic systems like blockchains and smart contracts give you real control, and in many senses, real safety. And so the recent institutional issues, which frankly, they, they have been handled relatively well, and they have been stopped from spreading. But I think they are just a small, small sign of everything else that's in the system. There's still a lot more that can shake out of the system. And when that shakes out of the system, I think people will see that while they thought they had a relationship with those assets and with those institutions that was guaranteed, they will realize that it's actually a probabilistic relationship, which means that those institutions and those systems can actually do whatever they want. They don't have to follow through on their commitments. And so, and so that's the fundamental difference between, I think, our industry and how, how the world currently works. It's that the way the world currently works is probabilistic. And the reason people don't realize the value of our industry is because they think it's deterministic. They think it's guaranteed. But as those guarantees fail, they will realize the value of a deterministic world. And the technology that provides that is blockchains, smart contracts, and oracles. So, so that's what um, I think the transition will be, will, will be. And that's why I feel that our industry, regardless of how it's viewed as an asset class on a technology basis, is inversely correlated with different modes of societal failure and different modes of societal trust issues and crises of faith. And I actually have good ex historical examples that already prove that deterministically guaranteeing things to users is how society tends to resolve a crisis of faith and, and get people back to the point where they can continue to interact with each other reliably. So th this is a great, uh, a really, really good jumping off point. So I, I want to kind of dive deeper into, into some of these terms and the ideas that underlie them. So this deterministic world versus a probabilistic world effectively comes down to uh, how guaranteed things are that people think are guaranteed. And to some extent, is it fair to say that the reason that we've had or that people have operated in a probabilistic world is that that was just what was available, that there, there wasn't sort of a, a possibility of, of pure determinism because the institutions around us sort of ultimately had multiple masters? Or, you know, another way to put it is, why hasn't the world been as deterministic as people feel that it is? Yeah, because it wasn't possible. And really, cryptographic guarantees, essentially encryption technologies, have allowed this to emerge. And initially, encryption technologies were applied to text messages and information transfer. And it, they provided guarantees that that information would be secure and private, regardless of what anyone wanted to do. What really has happened throughout history up until the last, let's say, 50 to 70 years, is you always had to rely on a person and a legal system for everything. And then information technology started to make things more and more automated. But information technology was still completely controlled by people. And because it was completely controlled by people, really, it could end up doing whatever those people wanted at any point. It's really only in the last, I would say, 20, 30 years that people have begun to push back on technology platforms in their misuse of technology. And one good example of this is text messages. So 10, 15 years ago, everyone would send text messages unencrypted over telecom channels through SMS or through social media applications. And nobody wondered or worried about the security or the privacy of their data, not really. 
But then there were a number of failures. There were basically a number of crises of faith where the institutions, the telecoms and the social media companies that facilitated the messaging misused that data, right? Either they allowed themselves to be hacked or they were misusing the data purposefully to extract value or do weird things with elections or whatever. In the end, what you really arrive at is a crisis of faith where people said, I want to keep getting the benefit of text messaging, but I don't want it if it means that you get to see it or you get to control it. And how is that problem solved? It was solved by introducing encryption in the case of messaging, end-to-end encrypted messages. And now the average consumer knows what that is and uses systems that do end-to-end encrypted messaging. And that resolved that crisis of faith, basically, because what it comes down to is that the entity that you use can't misbehave. It's not that it won't choose to misbehave. It's not that it won't try to misbehave. It's that it physically cannot access your messages. And there's obviously different degrees of that and different levels of of guarantees there as well. For example, Signal, I think, has the strongest level of guarantees. And that is what I think will happen with all digital interactions between people. There will be centralized uh, facilitators that say, just trust me, it'll be fine. I'm uh, Credit Suisse. I've existed since the uh, mid-19th century. I've existed for over 100 years. It'll be fine. And then if enough times it isn't fine, if there's enough SVBs, enough Credit Suisse things, people realize that it isn't fine. Just like they realize that sending unencrypted text messages isn't fine. There'll be a crisis of faith. And I think that's what we're going towards pretty rapidly. And that crisis of faith will once again be resolved through encryption technology. But those encryption technologies, in the, in the case of digital transactions, digital relationships, and digital um, interactions between peers about anything of value, will be uh, blockchain, smart contract, and Oracle-based. And so that's what I feel our industry is about. It's about facilitating that new level of reliability and deterministic guarantees, which are attractive to certain groups that understand this problem or have philosophical views, libertarian views, other views that lead them to seek this solution sooner because they understand the fragility of the systems that they are using that don't have these guarantees. But I strongly believe that this fragility of most widely used digital systems will become clear in gaming, in derivatives, in insurance, in ad networks, in supply chain systems, in global trade relationships. And the reason is, is that as I discuss all this with, with all those industries, and I, and I p- provide them with a simple question, a simple kind of thought experiment, if I was able to give you the same Web2 application at the same speeds, the same cost, the same usability, but I was able to add this property of deterministically guaranteeing it. I was able to guarantee that the application would behave only in the ways that you expect and no other way. For example, it could never take your money and keep it for itself, or it could never take you take your digital goods that you earn through hours and hours of grinding in a game and not have you access them, right? Or, or maybe it decides to do some other stuff that you don't want. I've yet to meet a person in any of these industries that says, sure, give me the Web2 application that has more risk. Every rational agent would choose a Web3 application as long as it was at parity on all the other properties of the Web2 application. And so it's actually just a very obvious outcome when, when you look at it. It's just the type of outcome that requires a certain push from, from the existing systems not fulfilling people's expectations. And this is why when bank failures happen, when there's credit crunches in countries, like for example, living in Greece, Earlier, when there was that whole ATM lockup, the amount of Bitcoin IP addresses that appeared in Greece and surrounding countries that were worried about solvency issues with their local banking system skyrocketed. And it's very simple. It's just that there's a system that you have, it stops working, and you need an alternative. And that's what blockchains are. And that's what our whole industry is. It's that alternative system that, based on the way the world is going, I think will become the obvious alternative in the coming years. So this this framework of a probabilistic world versus a deterministic world, is probabilistic just another way of saying counterparty risk? And that previously sort of all institutional relationships that we had came with the counterparty risk of whoever the people were that were running that institution or running that system and whatever incentives they might have that were that would lead them away from the arrangement that they had initially formed with us? Counterparty risk is a good way to look at it. I think it goes beyond counterparty risk. There's all these different terms for it, frankly. There's censorship resistance. 
there's tamper-proofness, there's counterparty risk. And each of them comes from different parts of the world. For example, counterparty risk is more of a financial world term. And censorship resistant is more a term from you know other parts of the other world where people care about that. But it basically comes down to really reliability. Reliability and security are the all-encompassing concepts. So what, what, what I'm basically saying is that all the agreements that you have in a digital-only system, in a Web2 system, even though you feel you can rely on them, the reality is that in many cases, you cannot. And the brands that provide you those agreements want you not to think about that. They don't want you to wonder about your actual relationship with them because it doesn't benefit them. And so the world has been set up in a way where there's all these big, big counterparty risks, censorship risks, tampering risks, adversary risks, security risks, downtime risks, all these risks that are abstracted away from you, but that you are exposed to. And I think that many of those systems will be experiencing the culmination of those risks actually taking place. And and that's what I consistently see. So what I, what I consistently see is that there's the, the messaging example is a good one. The Bitcoin example is a good one when Greece had its credit crisis. And it's just the same it's just the same movie again and again and again in different parts of the world, in different places, right? So if enough banks fail, people start wondering, well, how do I protect myself? One option is you can have physical commodities. One option is you could have digital assets, which is what they'll, what they'll call in the banking industry. But it's all the same thing, right? You'll, you'll have deterministic access and control over something. You'll have direct control. That's the problem that they would have that cryptographic guarantees would solve. In gaming, it's, it could be a different problem. In gaming, it could be a problem that you spend tens of thousands of hours playing a game and then the rules change on you. The rules just get changed. And all the time that you put into the game essentially is, is kind of diminished or robbed from you. So that's an example of what gamers might care about when, when they look at deterministic guarantees. Like if I put all this time into a game, the rules of the game cannot be arbitrarily changed. Um, and so I value that property. And really, I think it's just gonna, it's just gonna continue all over the place. In insurance is another great example where people who haven't had their insurance policies paid out, I can tell you from my own experience of, of working with those, with those groups and, and the insurance industry, they're looking for a deterministic solution. They're looking for a way where instead of not getting their insurance policy paid out, their insurance policy is automatically paid out without them having to contact anyone, argue with anyone, have to go to court with anyone or any of this other stuff. And so these, these problems abound and, and therefore the opportunities abound, frankly, because it's a fundamental problem. And the solution to them, to this problem has only appeared for, for transactions with the appearance of Bitcoin. Before Bitcoin, you really had no way to, to, to guarantee transactions of a certain type or of any type in, in, in certain people's eyes. And then it expanded from there. And so, you know, there's our industry. Let's actually, this is a, a perfect point, I think, define why, what makes this industry deterministic. And I think it's okay to be a little bit rudimentary here, assuming that not everyone who is listening to this has spent lots of time on the technicals of, uh, you know, of the blockchain space. But what is it, you know, what, are, what is cryptographic truth? What are cryptographic guarantees? What makes blockchain smart contracts, uh, oracles deterministic as opposed to probabilistic? Sure. So, so let's think about the computer science innovation of our industry, right? Uh, our industry didn't, didn't invent private key infrastructure. It didn't invent, you know, those other encryption things. What, what it has really invented is a new form of computing, which would be called decentralized computing, right? And what does decentralized computing really generate, uniquely generate? It generates consensus. And what does that consensus really provide you? Well, it provides you deterministic guarantees because all the other systems can be controlled, can be stopped, can be manipulated, can be changed. But deterministic systems, their definition is that they will function the same way every time. Every time you do something, they'll behave in this predictable, repeatable manner. And that's what blockchain protocols and Oracle networks and smart contracts offer. They offer that predictability because they are beyond the control of any one party. Once you create a smart contract as an agent to represent your interests, it will act on what you put into it. And there, there isn't really a way to change that. So, so the whole point of, of our industry really is to generate consensus, decentralized consensus on more and more topics 
combine those topics and make more advanced applications. And that's where oracles come in because oracles greatly expand the topics, the things that decentralized consensus can be generated on. But at a very high level, if you hear the term consensus and if you hear the term decentralization, what you're really hearing is that somebody values deterministically guaranteed systems. They value that that system guarantees its outcomes in a mathematical sense. So that as long as math and encryption works, then you will get the outcome you expect. Now, people vary in their views on how much decentralization, how much consensus, how many nodes, how big a network should be. They vary in the algorithms they want to use to reach consensus um, and the speeds at which they want to re reach consensus and all these other more technical factors. But, but fundamentally, our industry generates this consensus. So far, it's generated, uh, generated predominantly about token ledgers and private key signatures, because those are the three things that blockchains can really do well. They can generate consensus on private key signatures, token ledgers, and state machines. Oracle networks, in contrast, generate consensus on everything else. And through the combination of oracles and, and blockchains, you get more advanced kind of smart contract 2.0 use cases, such as DeFi and others which go on to provide you deterministic guarantees in new parts of the economy. Once again, because you have generated consensus about the things in that part of the economy that matter to those users. I want to get specific on, on that in just a minute, but I want to be highly reductive just for the sake of, of real kind of understanding for, for anyone listening. You know, to some extent, it, there are two pieces of this consensus. And again, highly reductive here, but I'm just trying to simplify it. One is the rules of the system, right? Whatever the sort of inputs are and what the outputs are supposed to be, the rules that are predetermined. And then the second piece is the infrastructure of the system that enforces those rules, right? And that's where the decentralization comes in. The decentralization is a uh, vector by which the ability for it to be controlled, tampered, compromised by an individual interest or an individual institution's interest is reduced. Is that a fair simplification? I mean, yeah, there's a few other other factors are uh, at play, but essentially there's the protocol and then there's the infrastructure and the details of the infrastructure that runs the protocol. And both of those are important. Let's talk about where this is being applied now, because I think a, a natural question is, is how widely can this determinism be applied, right? You know, you've given the example of, uh, of encryption of messages, which is sort of a, a, an ongoing use case. You've given the example of, of Bitcoin, which is sort of a, you know, tra transactions without the, the same counterparty risk that we have in other situations. You mentioned the, the idea that historically there have been, you know, these three, these three areas, private key signatures, token ledgers, and, and state machines, uh, but that oracles are now providing deterministic guarantees in new parts of the economy. What are those other parts of the economy? Where, where is this happening uh, that would help people understand how this sort of deterministic guarantee is expanding from these very simple, clear use cases of, you know, transaction ledgers, for example. Sure. So there's there's a few good examples between DeFi, gaming, and insurance. So within DeFi, imagine if you had a bank account or you had a counterparty where you put your assets into, and you knew every single thing that was going on within that bank. So you knew every single transaction, you knew every single piece of collateral. You knew every single thing that that bank, that that counterparty did, not later, not through some kind of annual audit, not through some kind of disclosure, but in real time. So you knew every single thing that was happening with your counterparty as it's happening. And that counterparty would provide you some yield and they would put your assets into a smart contract that you could always withdraw from under all circumstances. You could always remove your money. That is a, is, is a good example, right? So you have lending protocols like Aave and others that allow people to, to, to gain a yield similar to a savings account or some of the things that, that happen in traditional financial institutions. But the difference is that you can know every single thing going on within the Aave protocol and you can always withdraw your funds anytime for any reason, you know, meteorites could start hitting the planet. You'd be able to withdraw your funds weekend or not banking crisis or not, whatever, whatever crisis or not. You, you have access. So DeFi is a good example because it's basically the reformatting of all the world's financial systems into this transparent mode and into this user-controlled mode. And that transparency and that user control to people that have experienced it is obvious, right? Because it's like, why shouldn't I be able to withdraw my funds whenever I want? Why shouldn't I know what my counterparty is doing to put the funds at risk? 
seem like very obvious things once you have them. Um, and, and so that's the, the first category is define decentralized financial products. But everybody doesn't use financial products, so there's other examples. Gaming is another good example. In gaming, there is a history of various game creators either manipulating the games to make more money from users or having the game grow and then changing the rules of the game or deciding to shut it down or invalidating the value of certain goods in the game. So there are many gamers out there that could have spent time doing what's called grinding, basically grinding out large amounts of value in the game. But then the game uh, creator decides that uh, whatever they created, whatever they made is invalid, is invalidated. That's another very weird situation, frankly, that I think will make gaming very, very attractive. And actually, I think that in blockchain gaming, there already are and will be more and more people that can consider it even like a profession because there will be real economies that won't be manipulated by the game creator to make the game creator money. There'll be big growing real economies that benefit all the players in predictable ways. So that if what you do is you play video games, you can actually make a living out of it and you can do it in a predictable way because the rules can't simply be changed at any moment. The, the third category that uh, I tend to like is insurance. Uh, insurance is a big global industry and it depends on what we consider to be insurance, whether we look at derivatives as insurance or whether we look at uh, packaged insurance products as insurance. But at the end of the day, there are many parts of the world where people don't have access to insurance and many parts of the world where even if they have insurance, the insurance doesn't function the way they expect. One of my favorite examples is weather insurance, because with weather, it's relatively easy to verify what happened, to verify the amount of rainfall, the amount of wind speed, the amount of various factors that relate to a policy or to a derivative. And in many of those cases, whether people go to banks and get derivatives to get institutional grade levels of insurance against events, or they go and get packaged insurance policies, in many cases, the payouts don't happen. They simply don't happen because of some loophole or some basically a decision not to pay out is, is, is the actual situation. And that's a multi-trillion dollar industry in and of itself. Now, now, each of these problems is different. Each of these problems relates to different categories of people. And so if you're in one category, you might not care about insurance. And if you're in another category, you might care about gamers, gaming or gamers. But the, the thing that I think everyone should keep in mind is that there is definitely a part of your life that is not as reliable as you think it is. Like one example is even concert tickets. Um, this is the example that somehow somehow sometimes seems to get this over to people who who have been defrauded by being sold fake concert tickets. And what what the real answer is, is you could just have an application where you could scan any ticket that anyone would ever try to sell you, and it could verify if it was real because you would have a shared global database of all the hashes of real tickets in a blockchain. And that's it. And so in almost every aspect of life, there is a way to solve key reliability problems. The reason that people aren't out there thinking about that is because they've grown so used, used to the state of affairs, right? They've basically become numb to the problem and they will remain numb to it until it reaches a certain fever pitch, such as bank failures. And then I think there will be a very, very rapid transition to this deterministic world. Because once again, you know, I encourage anyone who, who doesn't think this makes sense, to find a use case and then go ask the people that use that use case, if I could give you what you're getting now at the same speed, the same cost, the same user experience, but I could also deterministically guarantee that what you expect it to do will, will get done every time. Would you ever choose the previous version that wasn't deterministically guaranteed? And I've actually never found anyone in any industry in the 10 plus years that I've been working on these systems that has found an example where they prefer the first uh, older legacy version. So in that sense, to me, it's it's very wide ranging um, to all parts of society. So one of the things that I want to push in on a little bit with you is, is this idea of the extent to which it is a numbness and a people not realizing that society is organized in this way, which I think is certainly part of it, versus a power imbalance that people are simply used to, where they are used to institutions having more power than individuals or even groups of individuals. And maybe groups of individuals can over oversee, but just to take the example of gaming, we live in a world where, of course, the game creator, the game owner and their interests 
would be prioritized over the, you know, the desires of the game community on, on some level, right? Hey, it's a company. They can do whatever they want, ultimately. They were the ones who built the game and whatever, right? There's a lot of that type of assumption. How much of what's sort of implicated in this transition to a more deterministic world is restructuring these, you know, societies or segments of societies or economies around the sort of primacy and supremacy of the interests of the end users or the end customers over what was an institution providing the service at the center? Sure. So the ideas around communal ownership have have existed for a couple of decades in their more advanced form in, in political science, but really I think they've existed for centuries. And there's been different modes of communal ownership through throughout the centuries. Um, I think what what you're really talking about is a kind of digital communal ownership where the people that create the applications cannot simply extract all of the value by owning the means of production, basically. And, and so I, I think there's this type of, um, and you see this actually in a lot, of, a lot of these DeFi protocols that have communities where everyone can understand exactly what's going on with those protocols and those systems. And I think that's a, that's a very interesting direction. In the early stages of those systems, I think it creates a lot of friction, and I think it creates a lot of uh, questioning and a lot of overhead. But in the later stages, it will continue to be valuable. So I think the way that society will get restructured is that people that use different applications will have better and better incentives to use those applications, basically. And in using, in, in using those applications, they will become a member of a community, of a communal ecosystem, basically, where they'll not, they'll not only be users, but they'll also be participants in the system. It's like if you were, were to go to Walmart and you were to tell people to go to Walmart because you have a share in Walmart's success, or you can have a real impact on that success. And, and there's actually a fair deal between you and Walmart for, for your participation in their community. Um, this, I think, is, is part of the vision of society's restructuring, according to some of these applications and games and so on. I think the real goal initially is to build the system and then to have this more communal um, version of the world. But I think that that society will be changed uh, also in that way, where people will, will not just be users, they will be um, community members of different products, basically. Products will not just have users, and they will not just have communities that don't receive anything. They will have both. They will, they will have products and communities that get something from being part of uh, the user base. This is super interesting. So obviously, I, I agree. I think what this sort of transition implicates is a restructuring of business models as well, right? You're not going to have the same sort of way that a game studio would have thought they would make money in the past be the way that they are thinking about making money in the future, at least not entirely the same, even if there's overlapping revenue streams and things like that. In this world where like a priori seeding control are part of the possible outcomes to the community, right? It's sort of a, a fundamentally different way of looking at it and designing, which isn't to say that there aren't new business models available that fit around this. The idea of tokenization of communities and tokenization of, of products that were previously sort of owned and operated exclusively by, you know, a middleman or a platform has been one of the core underlying drivers and excitements of uh, of this entire space, right? If you go back and read, uh, you know, Chris Dixon's "Why Decentralization Matters" from 2018 and A16Z's, you know, theses around this, he talks a lot about the idea that tokenization creates a mechanism where there's no longer a separation between the owner class and the user class, and by doing so, it breaks down the the misalignment of incentives that eventually happens. And you know, he's talking specifically about social networks. And I think it's a super interesting thesis. I've always, I've always been fascinated by, by that way of thinking. I'll frame this as a question. What have we learned with, call it, the first five years of experiments of, of tokenization? And I guess, you know, maybe another way to put it is, to what extent has the speculative side of tokenization uh, either enabled or counteracted the sort of the restructuring force of tokenization? Um, and I'm not trying to sort of say, you know, or, or kind of pin my, my perspective here on it. But I think it's, it's interesting. We now moved out of the realm of the theoretical in terms of some of this sort of uh, available restructuring. And I'm interested to kind of take a, an honest look at where we are right now, you know, and what your perception of that is. I think tokenization is good in its initial forms because it um, has put value into the system. And that value, you know, has gone from $10 million when I was looking at this stuff to 
way, way more trillions of dollars at some point now. So I think it's created a market that has attracted developers to build things. And those developers have uh, created more and more advanced ways, frankly, get even more value into the system. For example, NFTs in the art world are a good example of a, of a category that was not stored in, in the blockchain world, but became more stored over time and actually started to pervade popular culture and become a subset of the art world. So I think what tokenization did first is it created a lot of synthetic things that put value into the system overall, and that attracted more people and more developers. Um, I think the second thing, uh, and the thing that's going to drive um, a lot of systems to, to become successful or not successful, is quite simply network effects and, and uh, certain economies of scale and, and things like that. So at a certain point, you, you reached communities and you reached uh, applications that aggregated enough demand and aggregated enough security and aggregated enough of some kind of resource that they became the leader, right? They became the leader in, in that category. So for example, Chainlink is the leader in Oracle networks by a wide margin, well over 50% market share in, in pretty much almost every category where we, we have a service. And so when you aggregate security and you, when you aggregate economics into a single system, that system becomes better. This is uh, similar to Ethereum, where it aggregated a ton of value into one network. And so a bunch of people launched their applications in that network in order to gain access to that value. So I think the things that, that we've learned is that tokenization and direct access control and direct ownership of assets is attractive. It's attractive enough to create a multi-trillion dollar industry. That multi-dollar, trillion dollar industry has strong network effect dynamics where winner take all matters. And that that industry is now going to an another stage, I would say the second stage, where not only are more assets moving in through things like real world asset tokenization, which is going to be a very big thing driven by various technologies like proof of reserves and others, but also a world where more advanced applications can do creative things with those assets. I, I think of it as like the, the early days of the internet. In the early days of the internet, you might have had um, information transfer through email and messages. But you didn't have e-commerce yet, right? You had information transfer. People could send pictures to each other. They could send um, text to each other. But you didn't have e-commerce where text and images was combined to create one of the main use cases of the internet, right? E-commerce, the purchase and delivery of goods through the internet. But you did reach a certain threshold where bandwidth, security, and the ability to encrypt credit card numbers, compression and decompression of images, and the security of, of text information, once again, through encryption technologies, was combined to create e-commerce. And I think DeFi is the early e-commerce. DeFi, DeFi right now is in the stages of e-commerce where you would send checks through the mail to get your books delivered by the US Postal Service. That's the stage that DeFi is right now relative to the internet e-commerce analogy. And that means it has a very, very far way to grow into something really amazing. And so I, I think that the initial lessons are, you know, there's value in tokenization, network effects are important. And when you start combining decentralized infrastructure like Oracle networks and smart contracts into more advanced things, you get the next generation of applications. And the next generation of applications, the one that will redefine the internet, uh, sorry, the, the blockchain industry from a speculative environment with tokenization, into its e-commerce equivalent of the way that all peer-to-peer -peer and even peer-to-platform transactions work is the next stage. That's that's the stage that we're going in, right? We're 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 kind of at a place where everyone is still wondering, is the internet ever going to go beyond moving around pieces of text? To you and me, I think it's pretty obvious that obviously this industry is going to go very far beyond moving around tokenized synthetic things. But that's the next step. What are the challenges to getting to that next step? You live in this world every day. How much are the challenges technical? How much are they regulatory? How much are they structural? How much are they about demand of, of users? Or how much are they about a new type of trust hurdle where you're talking about kind of moving from a probabilistic to a deterministic world, but it requires either A, a sort of understanding of why the sort of cryptographically enforced version of trust and determinism is better, or B, just sort of a, a trust that it is. So I guess what you know what are what are the major challenges that you see as as sort of the industry evolves? I think there's three main challenges um, technically. 
And then there's one big challenge from uh, an adoption point of view. The, the first technical challenge is scalability because the scalability of blockchain systems um, still has not reached the speeds and the throughput that is necessary for industries like derivatives, gaming, and others to fully transition. And this is proven by the emergence of app chains and the transition to a world where we won't have a single single settlement layer for everything. We'll have sub-layers, right? We'll have app chains. And those app chains need to exist because there is no single environment that can handle all of that throughput, despite many, many valiant and thoughtful attempts. So the first one is scalability. Oracle networks don't have these scalability issues because they're the smaller uh, committee efficient version of decentralized consensus, basically. The second problem is connectivity. Uh, Connectivity is the problem that Oracle networks solve where you need access to other systems in order to build advanced applications. For example, you can't build decentralized financial products without data. You can't build most games without random numbers. You can't build insurance without access to information about the insured event. This is a good example of how this will continue to evolve, basically. At the end of the day, the the third one, I think, could be the one that really determines even faster, like accelerated adoption, and that is privacy. Privacy is something that's been built into the Web2 world in a very deep way, both privacy of contractual conditions, privacy of personally identifying information, privacy of transactional um, events, privacy of all these things is common. And so privacy will be a dynamic that needs to get built in. And that'll get built in through new encryption technologies, like zero-knowledge proofs. Eventually, my hope is through homomorphic encryption and, and others. Those are the three main challenges. Oracle networks relate to all three of them. The scalability challenge can, can be aided by offloading more computations into Oracle networks. The connectivity challenge is principally and pretty much totally solved by Oracle networks. And the privacy challenge is also solved by Oracle networks by basically introducing encryption technology like zero knowledge proofs to keep information private, but allow it to be used. So to prove the state of the information without disclosing it. And we have things like Deco and other cool technologies that are pretty much on the cusp of, I think, creating a revolutionary set of advancements there. The big adoption problem is with the usability of private keys. So the big adoption problem is still the usability of private keys by the average consumer. And I think that problem will likely be solved through mobile phones and some kind of uh, secure hardware element, or maybe not mobile phones. I don't know. Look, I don't have expertise in that. The, <laughs> the point is pr- private key signing is still a pretty wacky problem for the average consumer and private key control. And until that problem is solved, you'll keep having this repackaging and aggregation of private keys in centralized entities because you because consumers can't use the private keys easily enough. But but once those three deep technical problems are solved and once the private key usability problem is solved, I think it's obvious that this will be adopted extremely rapidly. Which of those technical problems will be solved first is is in question. How once once two of those four are solved, how they will interact and what unique use cases will be able to be made available at scale is an interest a fascinating question. When all four of them are solved, then I think the whole world just moves in mass into a deterministically guaranteed form. Because by that point, there, 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 really, there really just won't be any reason not to do it. It'll just be an obvious thing. And by that point, I think so many things will have gone wrong um, over the next five to 10 years that the global economy, the average consumer will be, will be very aware of the risks that they are exposed to by not having a certain level of control of um, of the things that impact their daily lives. Where do governments fit into this equation? Because obviously, I, th- I think one could make an argument that the sort of largest probabilistic institution are governments, right? Where the guarantees that they have vis-a-vis their citizens are in many ways the flimsiest uh, because they're the most wide-ranging. They're the most subject to interpretation. We have entire systems of governance that are designed to constantly reinterpret them. And they also are uh, responsive to the interests of large resource holders in the form of lobbyists and corporations and the sort of existing business models that are 
challenged by and potentially upended by this sort of deterministic world. I think about the example of, uh, I saw a tweet, I think it was from Ryan Selkis, but I, I could be wrong about that the other day, that said or that argued uh, if we were having the encryption conversation that we had in the 90s right now, there's no way that the government that we have would sort of have the same protections for end-to-end encryptions that, that, are, that are there now. Uh, I think you can sort of make the, the, the same argument for cash, that there's no way that if the technology we had now was available, that a government would approve cash that they, they couldn't control or see. Do you think about, or how do you think about the sort of, you know, governmental risk, be it regulatory or something else, for this a sort of ascension into this deterministic system? I think that one of the greatest forces of the last 70 years has been globalization. Globalization has fundamentally interconnected the world's economies and made people comfortable with interacting across borders and in the digital world. And that interaction seems to continue to happen regardless of government interests. And and this is proven by people's um, ability to use applications built by companies in Asia, built by companies in Europe, built by companies not in their local domestic market, right? So I think what globalization has done is it's created these great economies of scale and all these great interconnected economies where people specialize in the things that they're good at. Some of that seems to be falling apart now due to various geopolitical things. And in all that's going to create inefficiencies for a lot of places. But but all of that aside, I think what globalization also did is it created a mindset that anyone, anywhere can build an application used by the whole world. And so I think that's the new reality that all um, that everyone exists in, basically. And in that reality, it's very hard to control anything on a global level. So, so my view is that we're all uh, global citizens. There's a global kind of economy. And the internet and decentralized technologies accelerate that globalization dynamic, even if there are specific countries that don't want to accelerate or want to decelerate it. So, so the, answer, the answer to your question is really that we're in a capitalist world. Globalization has, has been kind of the genie's out of the bottle, and you're never going to put it back in, and everyone's just going to work with everyone regardless of what anyone else wants. And there's going to be more and more technologies to facilitate that. And that's the way the world the, the world's going to work. It's interesting. It's sort of a, a couple parts of the argument that I think are interesting. One is, it's effectively, I mean, you didn't say it quite like this, but there's sort of an implication there that the ability of those, that set of institutions that I was just asking about to uh, dictate whether these new systems can or can't get going has been radically diminished just by, by virtue of, of how the world has evolved. And then two, another kind of interesting implication is even as we're seeing perhaps a, a deglobalization happen in certain sectors, right? And sort of a shift when it comes to big manufacturing, as a for example, right? The US having major incentives to kind of bring the semiconductor uh, chip manufacturing back home, that the digital globalization continues unabated and just, uh, you know, e- even more omnipresent. And so there might be a divergence of sort of digital globalization and, you know, whatever, whatever sort of big, big manufacturing industry stuff is happening. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not clear this is going to affect local asset prices or local goods prices. Like, it's not clear that that's going to happen because everybody within their borders can still set some kind of tariffs or markets or whatever. But in terms of the digital world, people all over the world, even in China, all over the place, places that try to seriously, seriously control things all have VPNs. If somebody doesn't want you to, to watch some kind of show when you're traveling, like if, if you, if you want to stream a show and you can't, just turn on a VPN. <laughs> just turn on a VPN and, and that's it. And, and the show thinks that you're in uh, wherever it wants you to be. And you can actually get different shows by turning on different, different locations on VPNs from the same streaming thing. It's down to the level where it's impossible not to have a globalized economy. There's going to be a globalized economy, at least in the digital world. What's going to happen in the physical world? I mean, I think there, that, that people will find ways to gain efficiencies there as well. But I don't have as much experience with that, except in our work on real world assets and proof of reserves. And there's obviously a lot of challenging problems there, which, which will be very interesting to solve. I think globalization, yeah, I think everyone can be like, I want this and I want that. But anyone can just 
launch an application in some country and give you access. So we can all want a lot of things, but at the end of the day, that application is accessible by anyone who can go get a VPN. So there you go. So speaking of uh, seemingly unstoppable forces, I, I want to shift the conversation into AI a little bit. I know this is something you've started thinking about a lot more recently, uh, and certainly I have as well. And we, we talked about it a bunch in the, in the preparation for this. But you know, uh, to, to kind of frame it a little bit, a lot of what you've been describing, the sort of feeling of momentum, of inevitability about these uh, deterministic systems, as opposed to the probabilistic systems that people have had to deal with because they were, they were the only option has to do with exactly that, consumer choice. Not consumer demand per se, but just sort of when presented with option A and option B. Option A being probabilistic, option B involving guarantees and the system actually functioning the way that you think it is and, and serves your interests in a guaranteed fashion. Uh, you point out that you, you haven't found someone yet who would prefer the probabilistic over the deterministic in, in almost all situations. I think this suggests is that underlying uh, these shifts is um, is sort of a a larger kind of cultural or societal condition, and one of the things right now that is rapidly changing the world in which people live is the sort of uh, the the emergence of uh, artificial intelligence and its uh, infiltration of so many parts of our everyday life. Um, part of what people are observing is that this is also shifting the way that we have to think about trust. Uh, Midjourney recently turned off its free access, uh, at least temporarily, because of, you know, things like uh, Pope in a puffer jacket photos and, you know, Trump being arrested photos, which are highly compelling and realistic. Uh, I wonder to what extent, or, or what I want to talk about next is the way in which um, artificial intelligence uh, deep fakes, misinformation, uh, both, you know, call it benign misinformation or deep fakes, you know, people who are just sort of making fun photos for the internet versus actually sort of adversarial or malicious, you know, intended AI changes the nature of the trust equation and, and what the implications might be for these sort of cryptographic systems. So I'm not sure where the right place to, to dive into that is. Uh, it, it's something that I think the crypto industry is noticing. In fact, maybe I'll Maybe I'll just have one, one quick quote before, before I let you dive in. Last night, uh, from when we were recording, G-Money, who's a big NFT guy, tweeted out, what if the killer app of crypto wasn't magic internet money or overpriced JPEGs, but rather a way to verify what's real and what psyops in the upcoming battle against our AI overlords? So anyways, this is something, Sergey, that I know you've been thinking about a lot. So uh, you know, br bring us into the thinking about what you know, these cryptographic systems and deterministic systems mean in AI world. Yeah, sure. So I, I think the thing with, with AI is that it's very exciting and has a lot of great applications, but it's the type of technology that can get away from people without the right controls and without some of the right things in place to manage risk. And also it's accelerating at a very fast uh, fast pace. Um, I've had an interest in it for, for many years, but at, at the end of the day, the way it relates to our industry is what I call AI uh, resistant. So I, I think that one of one of the main questions is what are the countermeasures to AI misbehavior and adversarial AI things, basically? Both the misuse of AI, which is in the example you described, as well as purely adversarial AI. Both of these questions are things I don't see really enough work being done in. And at the end of the day, from the point of view of decentralized infrastructure like blockchains, adversarial AI would just be another adversary, be another type of adversary. So the real question is, would blockchains be the safe haven to create a reliable world in a world that was made less trustworthy and less reliable by the misuse or through adversarial AIs? That's, that's, the, that's the way that I would formulate the question. And I think the answer to that question is yes that blockchains would be quite useful, oracles and smart contracts would be quite useful, not only for verifying what's a deep fake and not a deep fake, but also for maintaining the ability to transact in markets, maintaining a view of reality in, res in relation to asset prices and, and assets. Because one of the simplest things that AIs could do, frankly, is they could go manipulate and crash markets. And then you would be left with um, the need for a market, but no existence of a market. And then if you had an alternative environment, such as a blockchain environment like a DEX or derivatives uh, DeFi project or something else like that, 
and that was resistant to AI manipulation, then you would migrate there. So for me, AI has a lot of great potential um, that I'm excited um, to utilize in risk management, even within Oracle networks and in, in, in other ways. But at the same time, it presents unique risks and a unique um, kind of profile for what an adversary could be and could do and kind of a new type of adversary. And that adversary um, is one that could make the world very unreliable, unpredictable. And that's once again what I feel blockchains and in our industry does, is it creates a predictable world, right? It creates a world where things are deterministic and the outcomes of markets, the outcomes of information is reliable. So the degree to which AIs get misused or there's an adversarial AI that goes on to manipulate uh, markets or information, I do think that encryption technologies will be quite useful in minimizing that, in minimizing that risk. And if that risk grows large enough, and if there's enough manipulation by AIs of markets that are not AI resistant or of information channels that are not AI resistant, then I think encryption technologies will be able to resolve that crisis of faith even more. So I, I think it's it's not really just about blockchains. I think it's about encryption technologies. And blockchains are an encryption technology that will have a very large role to play in a world that would become unreliable due to AI misuse or misbehavior. And, and so that's uh, the thing that's, that's interesting to me. In addition to how can AI be used for risk management and to increase the security of Oracle networks. Be because really, it's, it's a tool like anything else. You can misuse the tool or you can use the tool properly. And with any new tool, you'll have people that use it properly and people that misuse it. And if our industry is focused on creating a deterministic, reliable, predictable world, well, then our industry will have to create that against all uh, forms of unpredictability. And if AI becomes a form of unpredictability, then it's possible that our industry becomes the um, solution to that problem in certain cases. In, in your deep fake example, I think it's, I, don't, I wouldn't say it's a relatively simple fix, but I think you probably need um, a public infrastructure that can identify people um, and then can allow them to sign information as accurate or inaccurate. Personally, I really wouldn't be surprised if Twitter became this. So if Twitter, you know, they, they're check marking everybody, on the one hand, it makes them money. On the other hand, they're, they're getting people to verify themselves into a private key infrastructure where they could sign things as fake or real. And I think blockchains would have a role to play in that. But I think blockchains would actually have an even bigger role to play in various systems where transactions were getting manipulated. So for example, markets. While deep fakes and this, this type of stuff is, is valuable, really markets are very valuable. Markets are what the whole world runs on. And if you get to a world where AIs can manipulate markets in, in adversarial ways, that's a pretty scary world. Uh, and, and if you had another alternative world where you had uh, other markets that weren't manipulated, like DeFi markets weren't as easy to manipulate for, for, for the reasons that we said with encryption technologies being kind of ingrained in there at the very base level, that could, that could indeed happen. But it once again depends on this event, right? It depends on this negative event. The negative event could be global financial collapse, irrespective of AI, could be AI, could be AI accelerating global financial crisis, could be, I don't know, I don't know what it could be, but basically it could be a ton of stuff. And, I don't think the world's going to get more reliable. I think it's going to get less reliable. And whether that's AI-driven or global markets, fun time comes to an end driven, I think our industry will, will be the answer to, to both or, uh, or either of those scenarios. What makes blockchain or encryption-based systems more inherently able to resist or AI-resistant or manipulation-resistant? Sure. Makes sense. So blockchain-based systems and smart contracts and DeFi and all these things are built from day one with security audits and security and encryption baked in to allow it to be resistant to various anonymous adversaries. So from the beginning, the whole premise of the system is actually to be resistant to manipulation. So that's one big advantage. This is not how many centralized systems are built. The way that centralized systems are built is if you find one flaw and you get into the system, once you're past the security measures of the system, you can do a lot of crazy stuff, basically. 
and the amount of internal checks and the amount of internal checks and balances is, is, is not as large. So I think the first thing is that DeFi protocols have been securing hundreds of billions of dollars in value in an already very adversarial environment that, that, that it constantly tries to take and steal from them. The, the second reason, which I think is actually the more important reason, is once again, consensus. Consensus is what underpins all of these applications, whether it's on an Oracle network basis or a smart contract state or the blockchain transaction itself. All of those are generated through some form of consensus. And the, the reason that consensus has better security properties is because of having one entity to compromise. You have tens or hundreds or thousands of entities, basically. So your ability to compromise one entity, research that entity's security practices, identify issues and holes in, in, in its infrastructure is significantly easier than it is to do that to 50, over 50% of the Bitcoin network, right? So you, you basically are left in a place where you have multiple places to compromise. And then as you have systems that have more and more independent nodes, you, you essentially arrive at a place where it becomes harder and harder. So it's, it's essentially the, the, the decentralization property. No, I, th I think it makes sense. Uh, and thank you for, for taking some time. It, this is an area of growing discourse. And I genuinely believe, I, I said this, uh, I've said this a couple times on Twitter, first, that a meaningful number of people who have been in the uh, crypto space for, you know, whatever it is, the last couple of years, and maybe came in through the door of, of interesting tokenization projects or came in the door of, you know, NFTs, are going to find themselves uh, feeling like the big purpose is, in fact, you know, having this sort of alternative to some of the challenges that that sort of a new AI world uh, will beget. So, uh, super interested to to have that conversation. I guess by way of wrapping up, Sergey, this has been a great conversation. You know, as you look over the next, I don't know, call it six months, twelve months, what are the most important or sort of exciting steps on the pathway to this more deterministic world? You know, are there particular technical advances that you see around the horizon? Are there particular industrial applications that are kind of most exciting? Are there, you know, use cases that you think are going to help more people understand it? You know, what when you when you look at sort of the near future, uh, what do you think are sort of the next dominoes to fall in the move from probabilistic to deterministic? I think DeFi has a big future and will continue to become more and more widely used. Blockchain gaming, I think as the scalability properties of the core uh, underlying infrastructure improves, will continue to migrate. And I see more and more large real studios looking at making blockchain-based games so for some of the reasons that I described. I think those are the two main categories right now, defined gaming. Insurance is something we're always working on and it moves as slowly as an industry, but has a lot of impact. I think what we're gonna do in order to facilitate all that have greater and greater quality data, allow people to do more advanced computations in a consensus-driven way outside of a blockchain, and enable cross-chain communications and value transfer so that you can build applications that are essentially functioning across multiple chains. So those are the three big uh, pillars of, of what we plan to achieve is more and better quality data, more advanced computation, so you can build more advanced applications still using consensus, but without relying on the computational limitations of chains. And then also cross-chain communications and value transfer um, so that you can build applications across multiple chains in what we're calling cross-chain applications. Uh, I think those three infrastructure improvements in the coming you know, months and years really accelerate uh, what people can do in DeFi and gaming and insurance but then there's all the, always other use cases, right? Like it's very possible deep fakes become important. And then there's uh, a lot of value for some version of proof of reserves that proves the origin of a piece of content, kind of how NFTs came out of left field and very quickly became kind of a, a social phenomenon. So I, I think that um, there's always that kind of unexpected element. When that comes, I think what we're, what we're going to do is we're going to repurpose Oracle Networks to address the need for cryptographic guarantees and cryptographic truth in that new unexpected element as well. Do you think, I mean, maybe that's, a, that's another great question. Uh, does it feel to you like the infrastructure is starting to be in place now to deal with unexpected occurrences that, that happen. You know, you were just kind of mentioning that you could repurpose oracles for this purpose. So do you see that sort of not just in, in the context of oracles, which obviously you spend your time on, but 
other parts of uh, of the, the the crypto or blockchain ecosystem as well. Are we prepared? Or maybe another way to ask it is: Are we prepared for unknown unknowns, or are, you know, are there things that we're lagging on that need to be built? I think AI and quantum computing are things that are unclear in terms of their capacity to influence our industry. I think both of those have the ability to make what our industry does either more valuable or less valuable, depending on, on how they progress, basically. I think that our industry will need to adapt to the emergence of both of those technologies in the next, well, AI right now, quantum computing, that's not clear to me. But I would say those are two big unknown unknowns, uh, depending on how far they go and how fast they get there. Um, other than that, there's the usual question about consumer demand and uh, governments and all this type of stuff. But that's something that our industry has become experienced and more experienced at dealing with. Uh, because as long as the consumer demand is there, people will make applications that service it. I think the unknowns and unknowns are really around, yeah, AI and quantum computing. I would say those are the two big questions that I have. Well, those are big questions, I think, for everyone right now. Uh, and always awesome to have you here, Sergey, to, to dig into this stuff. <laughs> We're going to need to have these conversations on a more frequent clip just to keep track of everything. But I appreciate you taking the time uh, out of building to, uh, to come talk with us today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, guys, back to NLW here. I've been thinking a lot over the last few weeks about the AI dimension of this conversation. On April 6th, G-Money, best known for his NFT work, wrote, what if the killer app of crypto wasn't magic internet money or overpriced JPEGs, but rather a way to verify what's real and what's psyops in the upcoming battle against our AI overlords? I retweeted that and wrote, mark it. Within 12 months, a meaningful percentage, 20% plus, of people involved in the crypto industry will have come to this conclusion. Now, I think in general, a lot of folks are tempted right now to dismiss the discussions happening around AI as just the latest in a seemingly never-ending tech hype train. I think that would be wrong. I also think that many are going to extra dismiss the notion of crypto systems as a countermeasure to AI as just buzzwords stacked on buzzwords. I think that would be wrong as well. It is not deterministic to say that on-chain truth solves generated AI falsehoods. But it is the case that these tools are evolving in ways that are inherently resistant to some of the challenges of AI. It's clear that since we recorded, Sergey has continued to think about these themes as well. On April 11th, he wrote a post on LinkedIn that I've excerpted here. The question, Sergey writes, is not whether we should slow down the development of AI. That ship has likely sailed. The key question now is how parts of our society can become AI-resistant. How do we build countermeasures to protect ourselves from the misuse of AI technologies when it comes to key parts of our society and economy? I strongly believe that AI will accelerate certain parts of societal fear, mistrust, and degeneration, to the point that restoring trust through the adoption of cryptographic guarantees, decentralized infrastructure, and cryptographic truth-based systems will be the only way forward. Once the valuable link between putting key parts of society into decentralized systems and becoming more AI-resistant is made even more clear, I expect that our industry will become even more critical to how society works in a cryptographically guaranteed manner. There is lots to chew on here, and I think this is very much the beginning, not the end of a conversation. If you enjoyed it and you want to keep having that conversation, do come join us on the Breakers Discord. It's a place that we've set up for exactly this type of chat, along with a lot of other memes and less heady things as well. Anyways, guys, that is the show for today. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, until tomorrow, be safe and take care of each other. Peace. <laughs>